0: This week on Dig Me Out (laughs) With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Manici
1: Jay, we're back this week It seems like it's been a long time since we recorded Since we had a holiday break And uh, we had doubled up before that So I haven't talked to you in a while and uh, do you have a good fourth? I did uh,
0: I know Eric'll be able to attest to this people in, in Texas like to blow shit up so it's always <laughs> it's
1: always eventful uh, Fourth of July
2: That's way time. too true.
1: Does Texas lead the uh, the country in, in firework consumption?
2: <laughs> uh, I mean Wouldn't I surprised l- me.
0: Just on my way home from work, I probably passed a dozen or more fire firework stands. Like Basically, if you have a any kind of property in Texas, um, you just put a firework stand on it, and then you put your fireworks in storage all year, and then for the month up till the 4th of July, you, you set up your little stand and <laughs> help people blow shit up.
1: Excellent.
3: It sounds like Florida. That and gun stores. Uh, it's probably very,
0: very, very similar. <laughs> it is certainly not like Ohio. I'll tell you that.
1: Oh no, there's nothing com- that doesn't even compare. Ohio's. I
0: I, I I would say I guess it's like uh, I'm old enough to know. I guess uh, it's like Ohio in the 70s.
1: <laughs> okay,
0: <laughs> like people riding in the back of pickup trucks and fireworks and basically before there was regulations on anything.
1: Right. For the damn government came in and ruined everything for everybody with their rules or something like that Jay we have a round table we've already uh, mentioned that Eric is here we also have uh, Joe Royland two returning guests they have uh, joined us previously mr. Grubbs and mr. Roland Ro- Roiland, Roland Roland um, it's all good it's, it's all good uh, and in this this particular episode Jay is uh, it's kind of a one-off it's not one of our our scene episodes. It's not a genre episode. It uh, falls under one of the uh, one-offs that we've done a couple times. We're going to talk about second acts. And what I mean by that is we're going to talk about uh, artists who were in bands and struck out on their own or maybe started a new band and uh, how they fared with their second act. You know, that's know, That's a really tough thing Going back to all the way to the Beatles and the Stones and those sorts of bands, you know, what Lennon and McCartney and Ringo and Harrison had to do with their or what they did with their solo careers after the Beatles. And then, you know, Mick and Keith have had solo records. Bill Wyman, I guess, has too. Um, And uh, is, is Charlie Watts put on any solo records? Anybody know? I think
2: he has with his jazz band. Oh, okay, with the jazz band. And if we
1: were doing a um, – if this was an all-encompassing podcast, we could talk about the four solo Kiss records that came out on the same day. Uh, but we're not. <laughs> we're not going to do that. Damn anymore. it. Damn it. No, we'll save that one. Okay. That's for that's for Dig Me Out. Uh, when Dig Me Out expands to cover all decades, we'll do that Dig Me Out 70s or Dig Me Out Eighty. When, when did those come out, Joe? Was it the 70s or the 80s? Oh, 70s. 19, yeah. 1978.
2: Yeah, it'll be – Dig all of me out.
1: Yes. (laughs) So we're going to talk about artists who were influential on the 90s. Those were 80s artists who were in bands and then maybe struck out on their own in the 90s. So that you can consider them the godparents, if you will, of uh, the 90s alternative movement. And then we'll talk about the actual artists in the 90s who started out in bands. Some might be well-known. Some might be lesser-known. And then how they fared uh, going out solo or, or, or going into new bands. And then um, then we'll talk about, uh, there's a third section I want to talk about, which is people who kind of went on temporary breaks or, or never left their band, but they went off and did a solo record. Um, I would compare this to like Mick Jagger. He, he Mick Jagger's made like three solo records. The Stones have never broken up, but he's gone off and made a couple solo records. Uh, I don't think they've fared anywhere near as well as any Stones record um keith richards as well exactly but i think in reading keith richards biography it seems like keith keith's solo records came out of the fact that the, the stones weren't doing anything so he's just like well i guess i'll make a solo record i got nothing else to do whereas mick is like i need to strike out on my own as an artist so there's a much different mentality which we'll get into that there are there's mentalities to uh, why solo records are coming out and whatnot so as I mentioned, we have uh, Joe Roiland from Spin, Sit and Spin with Joe, uh, which you can find on uh, the YouTube, which is a uh, weekly video videocast. Most, mostly. Mostly weekly. <laughs> yeah. And then you can go onto the Facebook, uh, Sit and Spin with Joe. And then and Eric. What, what were you going to say, Joe? And Twitter as well. And Twitter as well, of course. Um, Snapchat. Uh, any of those sorts of things. That the kids uh, are into. Not yet. No. Okay. <laughs> I don't even. I don't understand Snapchat. Are any of you guys yeah. on
0: Snapchat?
3: No.
1: Okay. I'm not either. I, I. I have to say I
3: am, but I hardly ever check, in and it's only because my wife wanted me to be. So.
1: Yeah, I downloaded the she, app and I went on there and I didn't know what to do. It was the first time I felt old with with yeah. regards to technology. Yeah,
0: that's why I brought it up. It's the, you know, I, I I feel like I stay pretty up on technology, but that's one I just do not understand.
2: Yeah, 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 Tim. I, I you also it. been you've been you've been trading emails with uh, that mailer daemon or demon dot com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've been having that correspondence. Sorry, that's an onion joke, but <laughs> <laughs> <to> go there. <laughs> and then, of course, uh,
1: you can find Eric over at uh, ThemePartExperience blogspot um, dot org where com dot com dot org. You're over. Yes, you're a philanthropist. Phil- philanthropical what's that word
2: your tongue is all tied up tonight. my tongue is all tied up it's kind of awesome. also you can also go to just theme park and it goes straight to the oh, blog spots okay yeah. perfect yeah, yeah. and, and uh,
1: you'll find your yeah. podcast there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you'll find your book links with yes. your multiple books yes your uh, writings and so such and so forth um let's talk about the artists uh let's start with the 80s Because that's where a lot of the genesis of alternative music in the 90s starts with. Uh, A lot of important bands that made a huge impact. Thinking of Husker Du, thinking of the Replacements, thinking of the Smiths. These are all bands that had huge, huge impacts on the uh, importance on, on 90s music. And all these artists went off in some way, shape, or form on their own. Let's talk about one that just recently put out a record, and that's Bob Mould. Hooskerdoo, everybody knows who Husker du is I think if uh-huh. you listen to this podcast Then went off, did some solo work Did Sugar For two albums Has been uh, off and on with the solo albums Was consistent in the 90s And kind of uh, was doing some electronic stuff With some of the records um, I want to make a it, This might be a controversial statement Has his work as a solo artist Surpassed Husker Du? Can anybody? Ooh, can anybody that, back ooh. that up?
2: That's that's hard. I think of it as is they're all on par. Bob Mould's yeah. a pretty consistent songwriter. I would
3: say equaled, but maybe not surpassed. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's like Sugar definitely was a band situation. Husker Du definitely a band situation, but his solo work overall has been very consistent. And you know, Modulate I think was. Uh, it was a necessary thing for him to do to break away from guitar driven rock music. But I think it got him excited about playing guitar rock again, uh, given how uh, not so positive that was received. Um, And he's, he's released some very consistent stuff. I mean, like I haven't really fully checked out his last few solo records, but uh, what I have heard, like the singles, they're as good as what he was doing with sugar. And to me, like this, this will be a bold statement. Um, I find myself enjoying Sugar more than Husker Du. Maybe it's just my age being 37, but like Sugar, I mean, it's just essentially Bob Mould with a little bit of Dave Barbie, whereas with uh, Husker Du, it's Grant Hart, Bob Mould, Grant Hart, Bob Mould, you know? And uh, lots of great Husker Du records, don't get me wrong, but Mm -hmm. when it comes to like, well, do I want to listen to Warehouse, New Day Rising, or uh, Copper Blue? I would lean a little bit more towards copper blue and then listen to warehouse and new day rising and that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's such a, he found his niche very early in with Husker du, and he's just continued to expand it. And people really respond to the lyrics and how he sings. And it's just the ferocity of his music. Even now uh, is, is a very positive thing.
1: And I, I think that probably one of the things I have a trouble or I have a problem with is um, when I listen to the Husker Du stuff, the actual recordings to me are the probably what hold it back more so sure. than the songwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I like the, you know, the clearer production on the sugar records and his solo. Sure. Even some of his solo stuff is, is a muddy kind of production. But when he's doing that with acoustic guitars, you can still kind of, Hear it better, yeah. so. Um, along the lines of, uh, from the same city, basically is uh, Paul Westerberg and The Replacements. Mm-hmm. Um, now there is one where I'm. I, if if you're talking about the first Paul Westerberg solo record, fourteen songs that came out, you yeah. would be like, oh, maybe he did surpass or at least equal to what he did. But I kind of feel like it's been diminishing returns with Paul since really? the record. I liked Kane yeah. Gratification, but I liked probably half of it. I thought Eventually was a, a real bore of a record.
2: Really? Yeah. Yeah, that,
1: I'm, that, I'm a big fan of Eventually too myself.
2: Yeah, Eventually is like one of my favorite solo records that he's done. Really? I mean, no disrespect to the replacements, but it was just more of like, what if he worked with a, pro- a couple of different producers and just really flesh things out, and didn't sound like he was falling apart. I mean, like "Love Untold," God, that's such a great song. "Angels Walk," uh, hey, even um, the song that he does with Tommy Stinson, it's like uh, my trumpet uh, trumpet clip. You know, that's a fun little party song. Um, "Good Day," which is a tribute to Bob Stinson. You know, I mean, it's uh, I, I, I'm just saying, it's like I, I've been a big fan of eventually, but I understand that. People are like, yeah, not not digging that record.
1: What do you guys think about all the um, like the, the lo-fi like Folker and, and uh, the 43 minute long, you know, single take uh, record?
2: He's not could, a good drummer. Get him off the yeah. drum set. <laughs> <laughs> There's some things that are interesting there,
3: but, you know, I'd rather have just the Westerberg stuff rather than like Grandpa Boy. Uh, those those things kind of didn't necessarily the lo-fi stuff didn't work for me as much.
1: I did like that first Grandpa Boy EP when that mm-hmm. came out. When I was that came out when I was like in college, and I remember digging that. But I didn't really like. I guess it was like a full length that followed that. And I did right. like the the album that he just put out with Juliana Hatfield. Um, I can't, oh. I can't remember what the name of the the band is called. Oh,
3: I can't remember either, and it's on the tip of my tongue. But it's and, and I, I enjoyed it too. Yes,
1: it's, it sounds like it was recorded very quick, and you know a lot of like ideas that were were they came to like on the spot it doesn't sound like they labored over it and it has a real fresh kind of sound to it which i i liked as opposed to some of the times where he's um kind of handling everything on his own and it just sounds like he's not bob pollard let's put it that way right i trust a bob pollard solo record when it's he's doing everything I, i don't necessarily trust that with paul westerberg
2: yeah Yeah, I mean, uh, I I would say the stereo mono record that he did, the double disc, there's shades of brilliant songwriting on there. But the more, like, records he just kept kicking out, it was, like, some great stuff. But, man, it's just the... It's cool that he's playing all the instruments himself in the basement. like that. I like the rough-and-tumble side of what made the replacements charming in the beginning. But when it comes down to, like, the... If you got a good, like, uh, melody, if it's thrown off by, like, ramshackle drumming, that doesn't necessarily make it an enjoyable listen right. to me. Yeah,
1: when, yeah, where it's, cl- like,
2: cl- when it's clearly, like, you know, you can't, you know, when it's, like, you know, just that herky-jerky stuff, and it doesn't really fit with the melody of, or, sorry, the rhythm of the guitars. You know, that's the frustration. And, I mean, I hear you with diminishing returns, but, there was definitely uh, 14 songs, very polished affair. I mean, you could even say that All Shook Down was more of a solo record with some members of the replacements. And then there's 14 songs. And right. for me, as I mean, I was too young to understand or even know who the replacements were in the 80s. You know, I was a little too transfixed on uh, Whitesnake and Def Leppard and REM and XTC but uh but it's like i didn't know who the replacements were and so when this little movie called singles comes out in the early 90s and there's this extremely catchy song called dyslexic heart by it was this paul westerberg yeah. guy you know that 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 started a trail that continues to go and you know if you've read trouble boys by bob muir i mean it is phenomenal and it's it's helped me go back to really understand what was great about the replacements but also really appreciate all the things that paul westerberg has done so.
3: right yeah i agree with that and much like eric um even though i probably may be a little older i was still kind of like uh into like the 80s metal and stuff and i didn't really discover the the replacements until uh don't tell a soul and then worked my way backwards from that um so i came in and like the next to the last album and probably because that was like the first album I really became a fan of. I kind of I hold that album in a higher regard than a lot of people do. But um, while we're talking about The Replacements, what about like uh, Tommy Stinson and uh, Bash and Pop? And then he went on to have Perfect or Chris Mars. Granted, not like the creative force behind the band, but what did you guys think of those albums?
2: I always think when it comes to Bash and Pop, I think of that great song that's on the clerk soundtrack. And actually, because of that Trouble Boys book, I finally checked out the Perfect record as well as the Bash and Pop record. And there's some great stuff on there. It was definitely a, a, like Tommy learned a lot from all the years of being in The Replacements and learning a lot from Paul Westerberg.
1: I remember when I first discovered, I, I think I got into Westerberg when 14 Songs came out. It was like at the radio station. And I then I backtracked. And I think the first Replacements album that I got was Tim, because obviously I was like, oh, they have an album named after me, so I'm going to go get that. <laughs> and from there, I picked up like the Bastion Pop record. I don't remember it making an impact on me at the time, and I didn't go back and listen to it now. I should have. Uh, it's on me. But um, And I never really even sought out the Chris Mars solo stuff. Um, but he did play... Er- some, someone, someone to be somebody played in Golden Smog, and I don't know, I think it might have been Chris Mars on the original Golden Smog EP. Um, and that was really the only thing I knew of him outside of the, the replacements.
3: His, his first album, Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, was pretty decent. Um, kind of a replacement scene in places, but you know, not like not quite the voice of Westerberg. But but it was a, the first album was a decent effort, the rest I never really bothered to check out, but I love uh. The first bash, well, actually, I guess it's the only Bash and Pop album. Friday Night is killing me. That's a that's a record you guys might want to consider covering sometime. There's a lot of good stuff on that album.
1: Yeah. So the third artist that I mentioned, or, or band that I mentioned that was important to the '90s was The Smiths, and Jay and I have actually covered the two ends of The Smiths in terms of uh, the songwriting and, and whatnot. In that we did a Morrissey album, Your Arsenal. And then we also did Johnny Mars side project with Bernard Sumner Electronic Jay, do you remember our opinions on both of those?
0: Yeah, I think we both liked, we both liked the Morrissey record. I think we were lukewarm on the electronic record, yeah. right?
1: Here, Actually, what we said was, we thought that the Morrissey record was better than... it. Your arsenal was better than any Smiths record. <laughs> there you go. So, there's that. And he's had a, a long career. That was his third solo record after, I believe... The Smiths break up So that was three albums Into the The Morrissey uh, uh, Solo career And there's been Many many Albums After that And then Johnny Marr Has has made it He made those two records With Electronic And he's also made Solo records And he's made a career Also as a producer He's worked with bands Like uh, Modest Mouse And another band We reviewed um, Back in the first season Marion He did their second record So What's everybody's Opinions on I mean the Smiths Are an iconic band They made You know what some people consider like four kind of perfect albums um where where does uh, the, where the smiths lie uh, in terms of the morrissey mar continuum has the has the uh post career equaled the band career or, or is it uh diminishing returns what do you guys think
2: for me I, oh go ahead joe oh, no you
1: oh, no go ahead eric you, go, you started okay.
2: go okay my thing about Morrissey is that my introduction to him was The More You Ignore Me The Closer I Get. Yep. And that was I remember when uh Vauxhall and I came out and MTV just jumped right over it and it was like, "Oh, Morrissey was the singer of The Smiths." I was like, "Who?" Um because never heard him. Never heard of The Smiths. And uh, you know, then my uncle was like, "Yeah, he wrote this song after The Smiths broke up. It's like we hate it when our friends become successful." I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> and then I hear that, oh, he's got this song, You're the One for Me, Fatty. And, and <laughs> I was like, this guy's got kind of an interesting sense of humor. But, like, the more you ignore me, the closer I get. I think that's a great introduction to Morrissey's style of songwriting. Um, I would say that he's he put out a lot of really good solo stuff. Um, but, uh, I mean... It, it's, it's hard to say, like, is it better than The Smiths? Are The Smiths better? I, I, I don't know. It's, it's like there's, there's a different vibe when you have Johnny Marr just constantly playing these great little melodic leads with Morrissey. and But then, like, the bands that he had as a solo artist all throughout the 90s, late 80s uh, throughout the 90s, were pretty solid. I mean, even stuff on South Park Grammar. Uh, excuse me, South Park Grammar. You know, Do Your Best and Don't Worry, great Great stuff. And even the B-Sides record that he put out, My Early Burglary Years. You know, some mm-hmm. pretty consistent stuff. Uh, Johnny Marr, just kind of seen what he's done here and there. I kind of checked out Electronic. Uh, the last thing I really paid much attention to is that when he guested with uh, Neil Finn's Seven Worlds Collide uh, project, you know, they did that big concert concert. And, uh, you know, like they played a Smith song and then he had his own like solo material. And, um, you know, I, I'm not the biggest fan of the Smiths. Uh, you know, unfortunately this is definitely a bad situation where it's like, if I talk about the Smiths or the, Mo- or Morrissey, it's like, it's hard to talk about the music, but you also have to talk about the people that like love Morrissey, like he saved their lives. And right. they have to refer to it in a very melodramatic way. I mean, hell, I mean, I remember saying in college, it's like, oh, heaven knows I'm miserable now. Hey, that's the soundtrack to my life. But I was joking about it. Um, <laughs> but 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 there are people that's like, that got me through high school. You should never make fun of Morrissey. He is Jesus Christ to me. You know, it's, it's that sort of thing where it's like, oh, we're going to talk about Morrissey and the Smiths. Oh, OK. All right. I mean, it. I, I'm. I, I mentioned it before, but there's that Sloan lyric. It's like, I don't hate the band. I just hate their fans, or whatever that line is. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that that's my thing about Morrissey.
0: I think you could say that a little bit about all three of these bands. I mean, yeah, I think the Smith fans are a little bit more, and the Morrissey fans are a little bit more well, melodramatic. But there's a purist kind of take on Husker Du and replacements as well, which sure. I think you guys, I think we're on the same page about probably getting more into the latter day, you know, Paul Westerberg from singles, Bob Molden's Sugar is where I discovered that, um, I didn't know the Smiths. I knew Johnny Marr from guitar magazines and then I knew Morrissey from his solo work. So when I went back and revisited any, any one of these bands, um, I always found it difficult to get into the early work, um. Some of it had to do with production, just being so dramatically inferior to what the 90s stuff did. But uh, also just like, a, I don't know, just a maturity in terms of songwriting and presentation that I just connected with, um, you know, for the later work better.
3: Yeah, my introduction to the Smiths was uh, the Meat is Murder album. And I used to work in a record store, and there was a girl I worked with who always wanted to play that album. And particularly the title track made me want to slit my wrists. It was <laughs> so depressing. And so that kind of turned me off the Smiths for a long time. And it wasn't until, uh, actually, it was um, Your Arsenal came out that I actually uh, finally decided, okay, I, I heard some and I'm like, this is Morrissey? My god, this is fantastic. Absolutely love that record. Kind of went back and looked looked at some of his earlier records and then went back and re-examined the Smiths and realized that they were a great singles band, but I can't really say their albums, for me personally, uh, did everything, but there's a lot of good individual songs um, so I, I grew to love Morrissey after that, and appreciate the Smiths after that. As for Johnny Marr, always appreciated him as a guitarist. He also contributed to a couple of the, the albums. He was on Mind Bomb and Dusk, which is a fina- fantastic record. And to me, he's just somebody who's gotten better. His last two solo albums, not counting the live one, uh, Playland in particular, in, which was in 2014, and The Messenger in 2013, were fantastic. Loved the Playland album. I actually reviewed that one on my show too when I came out, but I love those records. So for me, Mar has only gotten better and more C2, so, even though he doesn't do as much these days. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: He's busy with other other things like authoring horrible books and stuff, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, I, I put up a Facebook post recently about another artist who, who probably is not in the same. Uh, categories as, as far as obsession with fans but who definitely has a, a similar level of success and that's Ian Asbury from The Cult and uh, my my post was about his uh, output in the 90s with the uh, the Cult solo record and then he did an album with Holy Barbarians which was a side project and then he did a solo record and then went back to The Cult after that and, um, and
2: then joined the Doors
1: and then Doors of the
3: 20th century
1: yes but I want to talk about the uh, the Holy Barbarians and the solo record because I feel like in terms of the the the, the story of Ian Asbury, it's the cult, the cult, the cult, and those two sort of things have gotten forgotten over the years. Um, they're diff- they're much different records. The the solo record has a lot of electronic and loop elements to it. Um, the Holy Barbarians record kind of draws from the same. Uh, well, as the as the so as the self-titled record, the '94 cult record, but takes it in a little bit of a different direction. There's some retro kind of sounds on that uh, album, and um, I, I'm curious. Like this, this sort of leads me into my uh, you know artists who are in big bands. They do solo stuff or they do side projects, and they pretty much get like ignored, as if like oh well, we're not really gonna pay attention to what what's <laughs> going on there. And then as soon as the band comes back you know, it's big tours again and, and the albums are selling and, and whatnot. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on why that phenomenon is? Is it just that people can't accept artists outside of what they're mm. known for? Wow.
0: That's a great question. Um, well, I mean, a great bands are, are, are always the combination of, of personalities and people, right? In contrast. Mm-hmm. So I think in a lot of those situations you remove, You know, if one of the personalities is providing the the light, one's providing the dark. If you remove the dark, all you have is light. And, you know, it's slightly less interesting, I think. I think he, specifically for him, he definitely, I think that Holy Barbarians record is a a continuation of what they were doing on the self-titled. And then I think the 1999 record, he definitely goes in some new new directions you know i think there's a lot more electronic stuff on there um he was i think at the time just more like freelancing just getting his hands on um, to a lot of different stuff he did a Boris song and he did that doors thing and i think he was just really kind of wandering around trying to trying to try different things maybe find himself and that's another aspect of sometimes i think when these artists go off and do their own thing is that part of that is to uh, explicitly do something different and yeah. that doesn't know. always work. It's risky, you know, it's not always yeah. successful.
2: For some reason, I am thinking of when Rob Halford left Judas Priest in the early uh, 90s yeah, that's and he one, formed yeah. Fight and Fight was a kick-ass metal band. Mm-hmm. But then, in like 97, 98, he put out two, which oh, was yeah. Hey, Nine Inch Nails are awesome. And also, I'm gay. <laughs> right. Yeah, was that called Voyeurs, that record? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and I think the reason why the two record was kind of ignored is that it it just reeked of, hey, electronic music, dark electronic music is cool, so I'm going to do that. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like, mm, no thanks, guys. Well, I think, too, with uh,
3: kind of on point with what Jay was saying, too, like when you go out and do something solo, you're caught in that trap but like you don't want to do something that sounds too much like the band you're in or else what's the point in making a solo record but sometimes you take that a little too far and go a little too far out from what you're doing mm-hmm. and then people kind of lose interest because like to me i never caught into that uh solo album of Ian Asprey's. i try to listen to it i have it because i'm a huge cult fan but i rarely rarely ever listen to it i do like the holy barbarians album though because like as you were saying tim it's kind of closer to the cult 94 record so that i like
1: and then the other one that uh was an interesting and i hadn't really thought about this when i was researching it but um bjork in the 80s was in a band the sugar cubes they had some moderate success and then she becomes i guess a breakout star in the 90s and and into the current i mean she's still a relevant musician in terms of Uh, putting up records consistently and, and, and pushing the, the envelope. Um, Were you guys even aware? Like, I don't think I knew that Bjork was in the sugar cubes until well past post and uh, into the, you know, the later nineties. Were you guys up on your, on your sugar cubes in the uh, eighties? I was not me.
3: I, I I discovered her through the Sugar Cubes first. I wasn't like necessarily a huge fan, but much like them uh, and Bjork's solo career, uh, it, again, it's like I like the occasional song here or there, but I've never felt the need to own a whole album. I think I have gotcha. one of her solo albums.
2: Gotcha. Yeah, I was introduced to her via Wayne's World. <laughs> 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 I think it was an MTV special that they did where I, I think there were... Uh, yeah, like I, I just remember Mike Myers as Wayne saying by York. And <laughs> I th- I think it was like top 10 bands that sound like a, a disease. And one of them was Husker do by the way, but like, <laughs> you, but like they would start playing by uh excuse me. They play Bjork videos. And I was like, what is this? This is, this is pretty out there. I mean, the videos themselves and the songs, I mean, like who else sounds like Bjork? I, I had no comparison. You know, and uh, it it was. I mean, she still is. I I've never really fully grasped her music, but she's definitely a, her own sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't. I don't think Bjork is for everybody, and I don't. I don't even album to album that changes. So. yeah.
2: Um, Like when she gets into really electronic stuff, I'm like not interested. But like that song, it's Oh so quiet. I mean that that song is amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm a i am really like Army of Me,
2: which Mm -hmm. is on the Tank Girl
1: soundtrack as well. Yeah. Um. Let's move into the the '90s. Are are are, I missing any artists that are? Yeah. Okay. Frank Black. Well, Frank Black. I was going to bring up.
0: I was just going to bring up uh two that I think are. I don't think they were huge, but they're noteworthy. Would be if you're talking 80s and then relevant in the 90s, would be Duran Duran and Adam Ant <laughs> were yeah. both like oddball, you know, huge in the 80s and somehow managed to have hits in the most unlikely of times. Yeah. Um, so when I saw this topic, those two popped out in my head as I still don't know how that happened, especially the Adam Ant. Remember how big that song was? Like, yeah, wonderful. Wonderful.
2: Yeah. Wonderful is just this like this you know, goody two shoes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like right. and, and, and it's like such a somber song, but such a upbeat melody. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just, you know, pining over a lost lover. Um yeah.
3: I would say that that song just happened to come out at the right time, because it was 1995, I believe, and that was the year that it, music shifted again, and grunge was kind of going on the out, and you had all these kind of more happy, upbeat bands starting to break through the huge, like uh, Hootie and the Blowfish, and you know, You're know, Better Than Ezra's, and stuff like that. It All of a sudden, like people didn't want to hear depressing and angry. They wanted light and upbeat again, so that's kind of what Alternative became was sure. like these second or third tier bands so adamant just happened to step along at the right time with that song yeah um,
2: I, I i think the capital uh publicity department uh i think they had some good payola going with mtv and radio stations just saying <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh i i i had one other one too for your uh, thing there too it's uh jane's addiction Started out in the late '80s, and then in mm. the '90s, you had pornos for Pyro, yeah. and then by the early 2000s, Perry pharrell was making solo albums, and Dave Navarro, I think, made one, and it was—god—he oh was in some other band too. But I mean, well, he was I, in I, Red Hot, Hot chili, chili Peppers. It. And yeah. well, aside from the Chili Peppers, there was it was some called other like band deconstruction
1: or that. something like that?
2: Something I could. Something well, there like was that. Honeymoon Stitch, I believe. Okay. Man, I'm getting really obscure here, and yeah. I'm not that big of a fan of Jane's Addiction, but. I mean, it, it was like, I, I remember like the Duran Duran singles from the wedding album being constantly on MTV and that record overall, I, I love that back in the day. I mean, like their version of Femme Patel, the, the violent, uh, excuse me, violent Femmes, the Velvet Underground song. And uh, I mean, even that song Breath After Breath, I mean, good like album cuts. And then there's was uh, of course, Ordinary World, Come Undone, and even uh, all this information um I'll say yeah. on
1: the uh, just quickly on the on the Pixies and Frank Black and I, I would also include Kim Deal and and um Kelly Deal with the Breeders. Yes. Um I I feel like all of their immediate output, the first two Breeders records, the first two Frank Black solo records are really good and then it's been downhill. Down like once he got into the Frank Black and the Catholics, I started losing interest. Yep. I understand what he was going for, very quick recordings, very like you know, uh, exploring, like, uh, different sounds and whatnot with regards to there's some, like, almost, like, country and and, and Memphis, like, stack-style stuff going on in some of those records, and I just kind of... He, he put out a lot of records, and I lost interest. Yeah,
2: it was with, just so much. I yeah. do like that first record he did with the Catholics. I was like, this was all live. That band is well-rehearsed. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, I mean... Eh once again i mean just to show you how like out of the loop i was as a as a kid in the 80s and then in the 90s having to play all this catch up you know hearing about well oh, frank Black from the pixies i was like who are the pixies and it's like right. well nirvana really likes them oh, okay all right and remember seeing the los angeles video on uh, beavis and butthead
1: So let's get into the 90s let's talk about there's a lot of artists who started out the 90s in bands and then end up going solo for one reason or another um either they went solo permanently or they went solo for a, a period of time and then we're back with their band i want you guys to pick we'll do this in a couple rounds what is your in terms of art art not necessarily in terms of sales but what is your what you think is the most successful transition from being in a band to being in a solo record? I hear that we've, we've got one person chiming in. Yeah, right it's
2: now. my it's my it's my Dachshund. Sorry, she's just you know, barking at air. She um,
1: clearly is mimicking the dog barking from from uh, Jane's Dictions. Uh, been caught stealing <laughs> and has got, chosen Perry Pharrell as most yes, successful.
2: no, I don't know. My thing, I would vote for is Sugar. Um,
1: okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, Because Copper Blue is just a start to finish fantastic record. And I also like the Fuel record. The Beaster EP is a dark kind of detour, and also B Sides. That was actually the first Sugar record I got, strangely enough. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, like Sugar, just really consistent for two proper LPs, an EP, and uh, Odds and Sods collection.
3: Joe, what about you? From the, the same category we were just talking
1: about? Well, just from any – and you can include any artist from the 90s, not just the people that were – from the, what we were just talking about. But And maybe I didn't make that clear at, at, with Eric. But anybody that we had an artist from in the 90s. So I'm talking like you can talk about Mark Lanigan. You can talk about Ryan Adams. Ooh
3: i i it ryan adams was, was near the top of my list as far as like definitely i've, I've enjoyed his solo work more than, than the whiskey town stuff and he's still like he's hit or miss sometimes but for the most part he, he's a, near the top of my list
0: okay jay well i mean most successful has to be dave Grohl. i mean who at the time whoever saw whoever thought that the drummer nirvana yeah. would go on to be so successful i mean that band is just incredible um I don't always love everything they do, but I respect everything they do. I think he does rock and roll the right way. Um, he, I mean, and since he's the, the the official ambassador for rock and roll, that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. The other, the big one though for me would be Josh Homme. I mean, uh, again with with what he did in Kais, who would have guessed he'd go on to former band like Queens? That was, I mean, so important in defining a sound and. You know, I go back and listen to even the you know the f- the first couple of records, uh, Rated R, uh, even with two thousand, and it just sounds so fresh, um, so so different. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think those two coming out of that that time were just kind of members of a band and yeah. really stepped forward and, and created their own thing. Yeah, I can't remember I Josh.
3: H- that logic.
2: Yeah, Josh Ami was in Screaming Trees, you know, on the Dust Tour. I don't know if he ever recorded with them, but he was he was like, oh, Josh Homme's got a new band called Queens of the Stone Age. All right. <laughs> yeah, plus, he did Eagles of Death Metal and the Desert, yeah. Me- the Desert Sessions and all that
3: stuff. So, But yeah, I mean, in, in terms of sheer commerciality, commerciality, you can't argue with Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. No. I mean, geez, no. I mean, they're arguably the most successful of anybody who is just a member of a band in the 90s going on and having a... Amazing career afterward.
1: Well, so there's one I want to throw out. This is a personal favorite of mine, and that's Jeff Tweedy. He was in uh, Uncle Tupelo with, you know, uh, Jay Farrar. They both went on to do new bands. Jeff Tweedy, obviously, with Wilco, Jay Farrar with Sunvolt. The initial out of the gate, Sunvolt had the more successful record, but I think that in the long run, Jeff Tweedy has had a pretty amazing run with Wilco haven't really made a bad record. They've stayed consistent with regards to their sound while expanding the band and, and, you know, stretching the, uh, the, uh, sounds here and there, but staying true to sort of the original, not the original vision. Cause the, the first vocal records pretty, it's, it's sort of like uncle Tupelo 2.0 on the first record. Yeah. It's really being there where he starts to become an individual artist um, well,
2: wasn't the first Wilco record cut with like a lot of the guys that were on like the like the final line, final touring yeah. lineup it's, of Uncle Tupelo? It is that. It's that basically it's that band
1: plus Jay Bennett. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of Jay Bennett, there's a guy
3: who uh, started out in Titanic Love Affair and then moved on to Wilco. Yep. And that that's a great album too. The first Titanic Love Affair album is uh, so good.
2: And he also the, played with Tommy Keene. Yep, one of the greatest pop, uh, power pop songwriters still alive and kicking, still putting out great stuff.
1: So let's go to the let's go to the flip side of this. Um, tell me about an artist who has gone solo. And again, this could be anybody from the '90s that any artist, and they and you could talk about stuff that they've done in the '2000s. We're just talking about in, they existed in the, in the '90s that. You were like, "Oh, they're putting out a solo record. I'm really excited to hear this," and then you got it, and you were like, "Oh, this is not good." <laughs> <laughs> let's 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 go with Joe first. Joe.
3: Oh, um, I I can initially say it was the Scott Weiland album from Stone Temple Pilots, although I've grown to like it. When I first, like the first single, I, you know, the, the first song he had up, it was uh, Lady Your Roof Brings Me Down, which was on the Great Expectations soundtrack. And that was good. But then the rest of the album, it's like, oh, he's trying to be David Bowie. And I don't know if I like all of this, but it, it did eventually grow on
1: me. And, and he had that second one. I think it was called Happy and Galoshes. Yeah. Which is,
3: again, it's it's got some good songs, but then there's a lot of filler on it, too.
1: It seems like he is an artist that needs a band that's pushing yeah. him and or he did, right. I should say. Because
3: Velvet Revolver very successful, but right. uh, you know, same thing happened with the other guys in the band. The Talk Show album came out, which was essentially Stone Temple Pilots with a, a different singer. Didn't go anywhere. It was still a decent record and then the DeLeo brothers tried again with Richard Patrick from Filter in Army of Anyone and again, decent album, didn't go anywhere. It was like it was just like the four members who made up stone temple pilots were like yeah you know they were the great taste that tasted great together nobody really seemed as interested in any of the other real projects they did on their own right. but those four guys together as stone temple pilots just had all the right ingredients to just make people interested
1: eric something that did not work for you as a, as a solo venture i would say
2: ad. chris cornell um that first solo record that he did uh, euphoria morning pretty good but after that i mean we're talking more in like the 2000s right but uh not really interested <laughs> i mean when it gets to the scream record that he did with timbaland oh god that was terrible which is like you know so like what the hell i mean i appreciate when artists like try to do something new and fresh but like coming off of like a, a solo acoustic record that he did, where he even covered Billy Jean. Yep. I mean, it it's not really up up my alley. And uh, you know, Soundgarden was a band that I really liked, especially was super unknown and down on the upside. That's such a great record. Um, but I don't know. I, I it, it Chris Cornell just as far as solo stuff, I'm. I I try to run away from that stuff. That said, uh, I've seen some footage of him playing in Manchester earlier this year where he, I think he took the lyrics from Metallica's one, but the music from U2's one and combined it as its own song. And it sounded great.
1: So uh, like a live mashup?
2: Yeah, a live mashup. (laughs) Okay. That's odd. Odd. Yeah.
3: His most recent record is actually pretty decent, too.
1: Okay. I haven't heard it yet.
3: I think... And I, he... Uh, oh, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, I think the, the thing that he he was great on, that one song that he contributed to the single soundtrack, uh, Sunshine... Oh, Seasons. And, or Seasons. Seasons. Yeah. 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 It was kind of like, oh, I can't wait to see what this is going to be like when you, you mentioned Euphoria Morning, and it's like, yeah, it, it doesn't That's really... another
3: one another one too he had a solo track called sunshower on the again on the great expectations soundtrack that phenomenal song but then you hear the other albums and they just don't quite hold up as well no um, but he also last year or so he did a live concert they did release it on a cd and an album very limited but he filled he did sort of a um, mad season reunion With uh, Mike McCready and and Barrett Martin, and uh, he basically filled in for Lane Staley, and that if you you can see that show, I think online, and that album was really well done too.
1: Jay, what's your pick for (laughs) underwhelming? Well, I want to chime in on
0: the Chris Cornell, just in the fact that I mean, is there a more talented guy who's made more average material? (laughs) Um, I think that's what's most frustrating with him is he can be so incredible, and then. Uh, some of the solo stuff is just so pedestrian and and not yeah. well done. It's disappointing. Um, th- my my pick is something that's I'm not a fan of either the band or the solo artist, but I I just think it's noteworthy in terms of it should have been much bigger. Um, so it would be Gwen Stefani after no doubt. So I mean no doubt for a while was a huge band. Yeah, and yeah. when she left, it seemed like oh wow okay so you know she's gonna be like the next Madonna. You know, that's the way I sort of felt like the way that this going to play out. And she is definitely a celebrity, I guess, but there's not a lot of material there to really point at since she's left the band other than maybe a single here or there where you She's you're had like
1: two or three good singles. Yeah. Yeah.
0: In long gaps of inactivity and just I don't know, it, it, it's like she kind of when I look back at it now, she's kind of undermined her artistic uh, credibility for the sake of being a celebrity and it's just unfortunate because I think that uh, she started off so strong with No Doubt as an artist yeah. and I don't know.
3: That last No Doubt comeback album was terrible yeah. too. Uh, and her new solo album, not selling at all. Right. It's it's pretty much been a bomb out of the gate.
1: Yeah, and it's a shame because I've recently went back in in, in buying a bunch of CDs to fill some holes in my collections of stuff that I never bothered. The first time I went back and actually bought the No Doubt records that I never owned, so like, uh, Tragic Kingdom, Return of Saturn, Rock Steady, those are just killer records, just pop records. They're just killer pop records. And that first solo record, or maybe the first two solo records, I think the first one has like Bananas and um, one or two other singles on it, and they're they're pretty good. Rich Girl, which is the, the one that she did with, I think, Missy Elliott. And then uh, the second one, it's like it seemed like she started to get safe with it. It wasn't as adventurous Cause you, like, I don't know that anybody was expecting her to be necessarily a pop star, but they were definitely expecting like something poppy from her. But you're right, Jay. She went like way over the top into this, like, you know. I, and unfortunately, a lot of artists kind of went in that direction um, in the early two thousands when they were. You know, when Alternative had sort of disappeared in terms of being a a, a radio staple and stuff like that, a lot of artists went to like this, I think like the Liz Fair record that she made, the self-titled record, which is a very pop
0: record. I mean, it's just disappointing because they were, you know, they were a real band at their height. You know, they sounded like a real band, but they had a pop, obviously, some ska stuff going on in there. Mm -hmm. And I just think now it would be so great to have a band like that be relevant. You know, with with a personality like her and a presence that she has, but then, you know, just have a, a real band that can write pop songs and stand with you know, uh, sort of very synthetic pop artists as, stand alongside them. It'd be so great to have that in the mix right now, and it just it's unfortunate that it hasn't worked out that way.
1: Um, yeah, I think- go ahead, Joe.
3: I was gonna say, I think the thing with Liz Fair too, though, is like she had kind of started to taste a little bit of commercial success. And she had probably people at the label telling her, well, this is what you got to do to really cross over. But the problem was it backfired on her because nobody was interested in hearing a really commercial Liz Fair. They liked her for what she brought to the table before.
1: Right. Uh, The one that I wanted to mention is Richard Ashcroft from The Verve. Um, Oh, yeah. The Verve was a, a band that I got into with Urban Hymns and then worked my way back. And really, really liked everything that they did in the 90s. I, I, I don't think they made a, a, a record that was below great. I mean, even the first EP is great. And I remember hearing the single, Song for Lovers. I think, I think that's the title of it. Yeah. Thinking, okay, well, this is this isn't bad. I mean, this is a good single. And then hearing the rest of that record and being like, oh, this is not good. And then it's gotten <laughs> almost like embarrassingly bad. Like
2: really, I, I, I haven't think checked that, out any of his stuff, but uh, like, how would you describe it?
1: Well, uh, the there's the most recent one, which has like these terrible political lyrics, like the most brain dead, obvious political lyrics that you could imagine, and even the like the, there's one like United Nations of Sound, which is just a horrible title, and it's he doesn't have an uh, an editor apparently because. He just thinks that whatever lyrics he spouts are the most absolutely thought provoking and they're just dull. I mean, it's just and the music is dull. He so misses and they tried to get back together for the fourth uh, or or, yeah, it's called fourth. Um, It's okay. But the big like soundscapes that that band would do and the, the big, you know shoegaze meets brit pop sound that they were really on the you know, they were really the only band doing that, where they were combining, you know, no Gallagher and, you know what he was doing with Oasis in terms of those hooks and that and that sort of snarl of his combined with, you know, those big washy guitars in production and just you know, it got more refined with Urban Hymns, but his solo stuff is just, it's just awful. Just mm. just absolutely terrible. <laughs> and it's been disappointing, because I like that yeah. band so much, I have to kind of ignore that any of that stuff exists. So we, I wanted to mention a couple other ones. Um, out of uh, Nirvana, you guys cannot forget that Kirst, Kurt Novoselic also made a solo record that's uh, with Sweet 75. Did anybody check that record out?
2: Uh no, but the interesting thing was is that the drummer for it was Adam Wade uh from Shudder to Think. Oh. And uh, uh Sweet 75 toured with the Foo Fighters. Um and uh and it was it was weird because it was like Oh wait, no, I'm I'm mixing things up. But but it, it was a situation where William Goldsmith and like Adam Wade were like really tight. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, hey, yeah, we're playing in the ex-Nirvana guys' bands. But um, I, I remember there was like a Venezuelan singer in that, and uh, she was female, and she had she sang really, really high. And, it, and Chris Novoselic like played guitar, twelve-string guitar in that band, I believe.
1: I remember it being a very odd band. <laughs> <laughs> um, Natalie Merchant. After yeah. Ten Thousand Maniacs, the first album yeah. was pretty successful. Had uh, a couple of singles. Was anybody into that?
2: I w- you couldn't I was avoid like it. you could. You couldn't avoid like these are the days. I mean, mm-hmm. that was. Yeah. I mean, uh, Joe, what you were talking about earlier about the like the Hootie and the Blowfish era, you know, where people wanted more upbeat stuff. You know, that was one of those songs that you would hear frequently. Yeah, uh, and. uh yeah, what is it, her Mystify song? I, I just remember this one Natalie Merchant song that was... Carnival? Just, yes, that was used on a display for a surround sound system at the Best Buy I worked at. And just hearing that intro, I mean, hundreds of times. Your personal <laughs> Michael McDonald's. DVD. Yeah,
3: <laughs> were you gonna I mean, yell and kill yourself
2: yeah well it was it was not as bad as those hearing uh my heart will go on like constantly for a year and a half so. <laughs> oh god um what's uh
1: opinions on billy Corgan' uh solo record and zwan record
2: Juan Record is great. Yep.
1: Yes. Because yeah.
2: Because it was Swan like, was what great. if you took the Smashing Pumpkins and had them play more in a major key than in a minor key? And like you have Jimmy Chamberlain in the band, in that band as well. And it, I mean, it was great. Unfortunately, it seems like anytime we want to talk about it online, you are just shat on because you like it. And it's like, you know, they had some jokey uh, album title or sorry, uh jokey song titles. Um but, uh, like, that was a really good, consistently awesome rock record. Uh, it was different from the Smashing Pumpkins, but it was yeah. good. But, like, solo stuff, don't yeah. give a blind fuck about that stuff. Th-
1: the Future Embrace, anybody like yeah. that record?
2: The solo get one? get into it. Yeah. The,
1: the fu- uh,
3: I, I gave it a few cents. I liked it when I listened to it, but it's not one I've ever really gone back to since it came out. Gotcha.
1: Um, We touched on the Screaming Trees, but... We didn't talk about the fact that Mark Lanigan has had a massive career uh, after that. Not in terms of maybe sales, but he's on everybody's record. He's does stuff Queens with... Queens of the Stone Age. Queens of the Stone yeah. Age, Twilight Singers, uh, Soul Savers. He does the I- isoball Campbell uh, records. Um, I know I'm missing a lot of other ones, but he does a ton of work. The guy seems like he's constantly working and he's constantly in demand. He's done Uncle, Gutter Twins, Gutter um, Twins. That's a guy who I think, uh, you know, in terms of artistic input or output, probably has been one of the most successful artists of the '90s. Just in terms of his ability to keep working, I don't, I don't know that outside of you know a few other people, he's probably put out more material than just about anybody.
3: And a lot of critical praise, if not commercial returns, but definitely his albums have been great.
1: Another guy who has had an interesting post '90s career is Butch Walker. Uh, oh yeah, he was yeah. In South From Gang. Marvelous Three. Yeah. Well, I was in South yeah. Gang. South Gang that. in the '80s. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a, a an attempted uh, '80s hair metal band, and then Marvelous Three, which had a, a one hit wonder status with "Freak of the Week," and then uh, has gone on to be a huge pop producer, working yeah. with. Uh, a number of artists and songwriter and then he's also had his own solo career where he's put out solo records every couple of years um those have been i've kind of dipped into those every once in a while and and checked them out um well i think he's a a really strong songwriter i don't necessarily find them compelling to go back Mm. to a lot i don't know if you guys have checked them out if you have that sort of same opinion i
3: i always hear like oh, his new album is fantastic, you should check it out. And then <laughs> I check it out, and I'm like, eh, it's okay. Although, admittedly, I have not checked out his most recent record, but he co-produced and co-wrote a couple of songs on uh, Brian Fallon from the Gaslight Anthem solo album, and Fallon was raising about how great his new, which Walker's new solo album is, so that kind of made me want to check it out. I just haven't gotten around to it yet.
0: Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm uh, in the same long- boat It's Joe. I, I, yeah. I every... On paper I, I should be a huge fan and I always give his stuff a a listen because the same thing I hear how great it is and I'm always just a little I don't know, it just doesn't quite connect for whatever reason. But uh I think his career is pretty remarkable though. I mean, considering yeah, yeah. The, the path it's taken and how he's endured.
2: Yeah, that uh, song synthesizers is really catchy.
0: Yeah, he can definitely write a hook. I think there's something oh, yeah. about like his songs are I don't, they're a little too on the nose, maybe for me. I, I, I'm not quite sure what it is, but he certainly can write a hook.
3: And, yeah. and sometimes it's kind of like one of those things where, like, you have an artist like that who, for whatever reason, uh, can't seem to really break through on their own, but, like, they have that magic touch with everybody else. Somebody like, uh, maybe even sort of close, but not quite there, would be like Dan Wilson from Semi Sonic. Guys had huge success, like co-writing songs for other people, like the Dixie Chicks and Adele, and you'll find his name on a lot of other people's records. He's even co-wrote a couple of songs on the new Not A Surf album, but you know, when he puts out solo albums of his own, you can't sell them to save his life, even though they're decent records.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh,
2: Along those lines, did you ever think when you would hear Four Non Blondes' What's Up in (laughs) (laughs) 1993-94 that you're like, oh, the singer of this band is going to co-write some of the biggest pop songs in the last 15 years. No, never would have thought that Linda Perry would be that, but she is, you know? Yeah.
1: I yeah, mean, that's and, crazy. And,
2: and she would draft Kelly Scott to play in her yeah. band. <laughs> yes, Kelly Scott from Failure. Excellent drummer.
1: Which can lead us to uh, Ken Andrews and his solo uh, work yeah. with on. Two two on records, and then he did a solo album, um, "Secrets of the Satellites," which and uh, "Year of the Rabbit," and "The Year of the Rabbit." A lot of solo stuff. Um, Again, I think all solid and interesting in their own ways, but the not having the push and pull with Greg Edwards as the other songwriter, and not having the drums of Kelly Scott. um, Although Tim Dow has is a good drummer in "Year of the Rabbit." guy who played with uh shiner um yeah. i you know there's something about those three guys together that right. make that, that's special
3: it, again it's the uh some of the parts is is better than the individual pieces Right. and ken's also done like the same thing again, with like, butch yeah. walker gone on and been a huge uh producer for other people and co-written you written or co-written songs so he falls into that yep too
1: who am I forgetting? What's can you guys each name or, or I don't know I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but is are there anybody who had a solo career post uh, their '90s career that you think has either you know done well or or exceeded what they did?
3: Um, I can think of one, but it actually started in the 90s, Uh, a a guy named Mark Everett, who started out the early 90s as a man called E, did two great records under that name, and then formed the Eels in the mid to late 90s, and has gone on to have success with that band since.
1: Oh, that's right, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, Let me throw one out at you, Mike Doherty, post-Soul Coughing. Uh, Good one. He's had quite a a bit of uh, success. I think a lot of that thanks to, um, uh, he got on Dave Matthews' label and got to tour with him right when he became a solo artist, I
2: believe. So, mm-hmm. put him in front um, of a lot of people. I would say Richard Holly has, I mean, oh, like, oh, yeah, you know, oh, yeah, he was in this band called the Long Pigs. And it's like, I tried to get into him. And, like, Richard Holly's music is some of the most beautiful music I have ever heard. Yeah. And, like, Cole's Corner, Ladies Bridge, even the record he put out last year, Hollow Meadows, phenomenal stuff. And you never would have thought like, oh, this guy that also plays with Pulp here and there and he played in the Long Pigs. I think he was the lead guitarist in that band. Yeah, he would create such songs like Tonight the Streets Are Ours or Open Up Your Door. I mean, just like, oh, that's music to fall in love to folks. I'm just going to be really romantic here and say like, you know, Richard Holly's Richard Holly's solo material just trumps what he did with the Long Pigs. Jay, anybody I'm forgetting?
0: Uh, I don't think so. No, I mean, it, it's interesting what Jerry Cantrell kind of did in terms of when Nelson Chains left, He, he it seemed like he was going to kind of have a big career. Like, he had a pretty big record, solo record, and then Boggy Depot. He, yeah, he, he went quiet, and then decide to put Allison Chains back together, which they've they've made two really good records in my opinion. Um, but that, that's another one where um, he's endured quite a bit. Um, so I think there's a you know pretty good story there.
2: And wasn't the, the boggy Depot record didn't that have like the majority of the final lineup of Allison Chains on it? <laughs> You know, like Sean Kenny playing drums and uh, Mike Inez playing bass on it for a number of tracks, not all of them, but it may have. My impression
0: of that record, it's it's pretty different. Like it's it's definitely him getting into his cl- classic rock roots. So I could see why it wouldn't have made a good Alison Chain's record, but uh, yeah. I'm I'm sure I'm sort of surprised he didn't stay in that direction because it's certainly more commercial.
2: Yeah, but I mean, it. it I, I'm sure somewhere online you can, through the web archive, you can find people being like, "You're gonna restart Allison Chains? What are you thinking?" Yeah. And then it's like, and you know, with a new singer, and the whole thing is like William and and Jerry sing together most of the time, mm-hmm. and William just has such a, he can nail the Lane Staley voice and he's also not a heroin addict. <laughs> yeah. So he's sorry also- to be sorry to be dark, but it's just like, you know, he he doesn't strike me as having lead, lead singer's disease. Yeah.
0: yeah, he what I like about them now is that he he nails all the parts but he's still his own person, which is yeah. hard to pull off. When you see him live like he I don't know, he just has his own presence and I think brings his own thing to the band but they can play all the old material and sound dead on and also, you know, write material in the vein of the band. So
1: I just occurred to me that the, the two big Brit pop bands, blur and oasis. Yeah. You know, Damon Albarn's been doing, he did a solo record. He's done stuff with, uh, gorillas. He's done stuff, the good and the bad and the queen. Uh, and then obviously Noel Gallagher has had, uh, the high flying birds and Liam Gallagher did the BDI two two BDI records. Um, I think of, of all those guys, m- maybe Noel Gallagher has been the most successful as a solo artist in terms of, um, I guess, being consistent. Although the Gorilla Records have been really huge, but a lot of that is about the collaboration that goes on with those records. Um, there's a lot of guest artists and and whatnot. I almost think of those as like supergroup <laughs> albums, in a lot of ways. It is. It
0: is uh, kind of crazy to think that. Uh, Oasis doesn't exist, and that band was so huge. And really, I mean, I I think all it, I mean, has it commercially has that stuff done anything? Those two, BDI and Flying Birds?
3: The, The first BDI album did okay. The second one originally only got released in Japan. It didn't come out in the US until like a year later and didn't do a thing. Um, with the first BDI album, I found it was like all flash and no substance. But the Noel Gallagher albums have done okay, and I love those records. I mean, if to me, I mean as much as I like Oasis, if Noel just keeps doing them, I'll be just as happy.
2: Mm. Yeah, I hear more about Noel Gallagher these days uh, being very involved with Manchester City, his home football club, and uh, which is also my football club because uh, I'm a glory hunting, uh, you know. Uh, fan, just kidding. Uh, but I, I hear more about him, and but he's he's still doing tours, and like he played the Majestic Theater here in Dallas, and it was a very well attended show. And Majestic Theater can hold a couple of thousand people, and I, I think the majority of the people that go to those shows is like, oh, he's going to play "Don't Look Back in Anger" and "Wonderwall" and some of the Oasis songs, and we'll just kind of put up with the the solo material because it's essentially a solo band with. You know, backing musicians.
3: Right. And, uh, and uh, Paul Weller, not Paul Weller, um, Johnny Marr actually contributed to that. I was thinking about something else with Paul Weller. Actually, uh, interestingly enough, um, Noel Gallagher and Paul Weller collaborated a song on the New Monkeys album. They that's tried, right. Gotten uh, like a lot of people, like Rivers Kumo does a song on the out, wrote a song for the record. Andy Partridge wrote technically too. one's a B side. And yeah. uh, Ben Gibbard from Def Cap for Cutie. And they're all great, amazing yeah. enough.
2: Yeah. Um, hey, guys, uh, just going to throw something out, out there. This, this I think this does fit into it along the lines of everything that we've been talking about. But did any of y'all check out the Bernard, the Bernard Butler solo records after yeah. he left Suede? Yes. yes. At, yeah. That People Move On record is fucking awesome.
1: Yeah, this first record's really good. The second record, not so much.
2: Yeah, Friends and Lovers, which is more of like a, hey, psychedelic rock, guys. But like, you know, people move on just the title track. You just know, Not Alone. Oh, and like he didn't realize he was such a good singer as well. And, you know, he's gone on to be a producer and he did that one off record with uh, with uh, Brett Anderson, The Tears. But he's continued to just be like a producer and uh, so I mean, I, I just wanted to throw that out there, get a good mention of Bernard Butler. Yeah.
1: I think we have covered our our second acts.'ve we've, we've hit on what we liked, what we didn't like. We've kind of gotten into maybe why second acts don't always work out, why solo records don't always uh, connect with the public. And we've uh, looked at some artists who maybe have haven't had the biggest success in terms of sales but have had successful careers nonetheless. Um I want to thank our guests for this particular episode from theme dot com do you know who you are podcast post and many other things that you should go <laughs> check out Mr. Eric Grubbs. thanks for having me guys. thank you for uh, what is this like your forty seventh appearance forty eight <laughs> I
2: think this is like my fourth or fifth
1: okay. And then, of course, um, from S- Sit and Spin with Joe, the videocast, which you can find on YouTube. And then you can follow along on uh, Facebook and Twitter, Joe Royland. Thanks for coming back, Joe.
3: Oh, thanks for having me again. I, I had Eric at, like, 10, I think, more than 5.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: they're always good shows when he's on. He's approaching
1: the Alec Baldwin, Steve Martin level. Yes. Of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, but
3: i uh, always happy to be here when I can.
1: Awesome. And we want to thank our listeners. We want to remind them they can go to Patreon and become a subscriber at either $1 a month or 250 a month. 250 gets you a review after 12 months and both levels give you access to bonus material which this show will provide as well as future shows and you can check out previous bonus material from past episodes and bonus uh, content like previews of upcoming episodes and whatnot. And if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. For JM Tim, we're out. We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig Me Out.
0: Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or Requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.